Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, Judith Collins. From failed party leader to living in the political wilderness to minister in charge of defence, spy agencies, space, technology, the list goes on. A total of seven ministerial roles and attorney general. But the first week for Collins and the 29 other government ministers has been overshadowed by this. Luxon, were you comfortable with the comments that Mr Peters made about the media yesterday? I uh, didn't see those comments, but I'm excited to get to work with this team. For Mr Luxon's benefit, here's more of what he said. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. OK. So, no, no, you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. He's talking about the Public Interest Journalism Fund, followed... By this. In breaking news tonight, the Coalition has claimed its first public sector resignation, with a board member of New Zealand On Air resigning after making a political post on social media slamming new Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters. In a moment, we'll hear from a former minister about the new government's first week, but first, Judith Collins on her eight new roles and why she's glad she's no longer the leader. Now, on Monday evening, yes, you tweeted, am somewhat thrilled to be sworn <laughs> in today as PM Christopher Luxon's government as Attorney General and seven ministerial roles. Somewhat thrilled. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> what he's really saying is totally excitedly thrilled um, and just a little overwhelmed. But anyway, I've, I've uh, come to terms with it, getting on to it. Come to terms with it. <laughs> well, it's a big job, a big loss, a lot of jobs and a big job. And I'm already, you know, starting the briefings, getting into it, uh, really enjoying it. Did you ask for all of these roles? Well, um, it's not quite like that. It's like we have discussions, we talk about some things, and then the Prime Minister makes his decision, and I'm very happy with them. What exactly does an Attorney-General do? Well, the Attorney-General is what's called the um, the senior legal um, officer to the government, and the junior legal officer is the Solicitor-General. The Attorney-General therefore provides legal advice to Cabinet um, and obviously is backed up by the heft of Crown Law and the Solicitor-General, but also the Attorney-General is responsible for the appointment of judges and is also involved very much in inquiries, um, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's a very senior role and to have that is, um, I'm actually very deeply humbled by it and very appreciative to the Prime Minister for um, showing this level of confidence in me. Why do we need a Minister for Space? Because space is incredibly important. It's uh, one of those sectors that a lot of New Zealanders don't know much about, but actually are really excited when they find out we have a space industry. So people will have heard of Rocket Lab, for instance. People will have heard of some of the other businesses in New Zealand, and particularly around Christchurch actually as well, and Mahia Peninsula and the satellite launches, um, rockets are launched, but it's actually one of the fastest growing parts of the tech sector and incredibly important, and tech overall is, according to at least one report, worth around $19 billion uh, to us last year, so it's really important part of our growing economy. And what would your ambitions be for the space 
sector in New Zealand? I mean, do you want to see more rocket labs, for example? Uh, we certainly um, do want to see more um, encouragement and open for business around space. And I think the people in the space industry and sector are very aware that New Zealand uh, has a space agency that we are prioritising that as one of the areas of economic growth. And it's also very important for scientific growth, which people don't always know about until you sort of talk to the people involved, that there's a lot of uh, experimentation, there's a lot of scientific tests being undertaken. And I think that there's um, opportunities for us there, and certainly that's what the sector tells me. So the if I was looking at the future, I would see us as continuing to grow the sector uh, continuing to build on our relationships with um, other countries and continuing to be seen as a good place to do business in space. Now, New Zealand has, compared to many other countries, very clear skies. Uh, we have, uh, we're a different part of the world from, say, if you're looking at Europe and you're trying to launch satellites from there, it's pretty tough to find clear, mm. clear space. Um, but also we have a, in both civil aviation for the advanced um, aviation and also in with the space agency regulators that try to do their very best to encourage and to promote the sector. As the Minister for Science, Innovation and Technology, what are you going to do about online fraud and the cybersecurity crisis? Because it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Mm, well, there's quite a lot that um, overlaps with my colleague Melissa Lee's portfolios of around um, digital as well. So she's got some which we will be working on together. I think it's very important that um, when we look at the cybersecurity that we and in fact I've obviously got the um, security agencies as well, the GCSB mm. um, and SIS as well. There's a huge uh, connection between that and the cyber security area. So we've had some discussions um, and I think one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we enable people to make the right decisions when it comes to cyber security. One of the things that I've mentioned to uh, the agencies is I think it's pretty awful the way that people who are, who are victims of cyber crime are often vilified. Uh, very unfortunately, victims tend to get you know told that they shouldn't have done something or that they were foolish. So there's a lot of victim blaming. I'd like to change that wherever possible. We need a national anti-scam centre, don't we, like they have in Australia. <sighs> and I know that I was at the BNZ recently doing this very story and the head of fraud there said that's what's missing here. Well, I think that there's already work going on around how to engage with the public and also understanding uh, for the public where to go to. And so that's no doubt one of those discussions we'll have. What about artificial intelligence? Do we need more leadership on this? People are afraid of it, but there's you know there's some really good elements to it. Well, I think artificial intelligence is like um, many other advanced technologies that if it's used for good, it can be extremely helpful. If it's used for evil, uh, then it can be very bad. So it's certainly something that we need to embrace a lot more in terms of safe use of AI and particularly in where there's customer service focus. So if I 
say to people, and just like you, um, Sharon, I've talked to people about AI and sometimes there is some concern and fear of it, that when I say that if they, how did they get to that meeting, did they use you know, a Google map or something like that, often people will have said yes. Well, that's actually AI, of course, being used. So it can be very helpful. But what we need to do is to have a framework around how government agencies can use it and also to promote its safe use in business as well. So um, I've already talked to the appropriate agency, MB, about that and how we can better work to make sure we have a good framework in place. Peter Dunn calls you a wise old owl. You need someone in, in any cabinet who can be that wise old owl who's been around the traps, had a few knocks along the way, knows what it's like and can dispense some wisdom and some advice to uh, those who are newer and still a bit wide-eyed about the whole process. Is that a good description? <laughs> oh, that's very kind of Peter. Um, well, I think Peter Peter is a pretty wise old owl himself. I wouldn't necessarily apply it to myself because I also make mistakes from time to time, but at least I'm trying to do the right thing. Here's a little reminder of what's put her in the spotlight over the years, including her reign as opposition leader from July 2020 to November 2021, famously taking over from Todd Muller. Judith Collins, as you've never seen her before tattooed on the top of Nick Gibbon's thigh. This is John Key publicly criticising Judith Collins over her part in dirty politics. I think the passing of the um, you know, private information you know, in terms of phone numbers, I think that's unwise. When can we determine that you're joking and when can we determine that you're being factual? When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Have you deleted that fake um, no, news? No, no, no. Why not? No, no because once you go into... You know what it's like, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, Social media. My husband is Samoan, uh, so talofa. Judith Collins says she was thrown under the bus by John Key when the former Prime Minister publicly reprimanded her in response to the Oravita saga. Oh, don't be ridiculous, John. It's two years from election. You don't turn up in opposition and say, this is our big policy. What you we do, did you, say... You do, you no, no, do, no, don't give me that. Do, no, it's you rubbish. You do when you've just it's, suffered your biggest defeat in, in rubbish, a generation. John. Yes, well, I, I have to say I took on the role of the leadership at a time of absolute disruption and chaos, and um, and it was very, very hard. Worst job I've ever had. And, and I was very pleased when Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis took over... Yeah, and you must be feeling glad that you're not the leader at the moment having to deal with two coalition partners with very strong personalities. So, we, I mean, you know, we've already had a taste of what it's like. Well, it, politics is full of people with strong personalities and I actually think that uh, the Prime Minister has been absolutely masterful. I mean, I, I look at him in awe and, and think, gosh, I don't know how you do this. But he is, he is, uh, he's brought together um, different policies, different people, and he's just done the most incredible job. I think he's going to be one of the great prime ministers. But, Judith, I have to say, you know, the first cabinet meeting yesterday, I don't know how that went and we, we won't know, but, you know, the coverage of that, it was overshadowed by Winston Peters. Well, look, everyone has their own personalities, and I, I don't. I think the prime minister will be very happy to be leading the coalition government. It's a, you know, it's it's not an it's not an easy job 
being the prime minister, you can see that in every prime minister that it's it's a lot of bringing people together and getting the job done. But he's going to do he's going to do brilliantly. I'm just wondering, in your many roles, your many ministerial roles, are you worried that you will be hamstrung by this coalition because it has to run through not just one party but two others as well? No, not at all. And in fact, what I see that there is a lot of agreement on some of the um, the issues that I've got to deal with. I'm used to working in government as a minority government, and so I've always had to, in my years in government um, as a minister, had to go to the ACT Party, United Future, Māori Party, to get support for any legislation. You might know that I set up a, a cross-party caucus of um, on AI earlier this year and I expect to continue that work working with other parties wherever possible so that we can come to uh, decisions that we're all reasonably happy with. As the Attorney General, would you investigate the claims by Winston Peters that the media were taking bribes from the Labour government through the $55 million journalism fund? Well, it's not a role for the Attorney-General because it's not like in the United States where certain states you can instruct that um, there are investigations into things. It's not like that. We have a separation of powers and I'm sure that cool heads will prevail and that um, uh, should there be any complaints that those complaints would go to either the serious fraud office or to the police. So that that wouldn't be the role of the Attorney-General? No, not, no. If there was an inquiry, um, that's a different matter, but that's very hypothetical, and I just, I think um, it's one of those things where um, I think we just need to get on with the government, actually. Right. <laughs> it's going to blow over, is it? Well, I don't know. I can't predict the future. No. But I can say I'm going to be very busy. And what do you think your first announcement is going to be as one of these ministers? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to wait and see. OK. Something before Christmas, do you think? Oh, I think you, well, you'll, you'll see some announcement, but it won't be... Um, it won't be that outrageously interesting to anyone else. <laughs> Except you. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> Let's get a take on the new government from former Minister Peter Dunn. Luxon's business-like approach seems to be coming through, both in terms of the structure of the uh, coalition agreements, but also just the way in which the government is going to start to function. But then, of course, he's got some elements that, that he can't quite control to the same extent as his own team, his two coalition partners. I guess what he's trying to do is set an overall tone, which hopefully uh, the other two parties will fit in with. And uh, so far, the signs on that are a bit mixed. I mean, Winston Peters' behaviour since the coalition was announced, both at the announcement and at the swearing in, there have been a few bizarre moments. As the media were packing up to leave today, Peters went in again. Before you ask one more question, tell the public what you signed up to to get the money. This is called transparency, OK? Appropriate, Mr Luxon. Thank you. Right, ready to go? We'll take that as a no comment. Winston Peters, is it's not unexpected, is it? No, it's not. And it's really been, I think, all about his whole focus is to somehow be part of the team but actually separate from it so that if things go wrong, he's got he's got a... Uh, an excuse to to either move aside or become more critical. I think he's trying to lay his ground right from the beginning, uh, but it just 
does come up against the the Luxon approach, which is sort of organised structure, um, process driven. You know, no big deal at the moment, but it could it could erupt into something a little later down the track. When you say erupt, I mean, what worries you about it? I, th- I think the issue, and it's the same with all coalition governments, is the going is good by, while, A, the formation takes place, and B, they get on with implementing the elements of their agreements, their respective agreements. The problems arise when unforeseen events occur, and something that's not catered for in any of the agreements crops up. The government has to make a decision, and one or other of the smaller parties ends up feeling that they didn't quite get what they want. That's the difficulty that emerges. You go back to uh, the Labour New Zealand First Coalition. It was pretty clear when COVID came along and the government or the Labour part of the government took control that New Zealand First and particularly Winston Peters as the Deputy Prime Minister was left out of the loop, felt extremely miffed, and that I think tarnished relations for the balance of the term. So it's those sorts of things, if and when they occur, that you've got to watch out for. How much control does Luxon have over Winston Peters and David Seymour? I mean, you know, he he's the boss, right? But they are they represent two different parties. And that's going to be the interesting thing to just to 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 tease out. At one level, Luxon's got absolute control because as the head of government, as the the prime minister, the chair of cabinet, he's got the right to demand absolute cabinet responsibility of all its members. So he's got control in that sense. If any one of them breaches uh, the provisions of the cabinet manual or cabinet uh, responsibility, then he he can hold them to account. But I think where the the grey areas are is... What actually happens if there's conduct within either of the uh, coalition partners, the smaller partners, that is contrary to the interest of the government? For instance, if a if a backbench MP goes rogue or if, if, if there's a rebellion within that party over aspects of policy, where does Luxon's con- control as the head of the overall coalition come in? And it's going to be it's – it's a challenge. He can't discipline the individual members of, of a New Zealand First or an Act caucus, say – he can at best say to those respective leaders, you need to do something about this and I expect you to act accordingly. But if they don't, it's a bit of a grey area as to what his authority is. What if, um, you know, either Seymour or Peters misbehave or say something that they shouldn't be saying that kind of goes against the government line? I think that's a little clearer because they are ministers in his cabinet. They are responsible to the prime minister in that respect. I think he can hold them to account uh, more precisely than he can, say, other members of the caucus who aren't ministers and who are uh, making noises that are embarrassing to the government. Uh, So whether, of course, it gets to that point, if you've got a really falling out between the leaders of the coalition, then the coalition's in trouble. And I suspect there'll be steps taken long before that eventuates to mitigate against those circumstances. Is it unusual that Luxon isn't the minister of anything? No, and I think that's an interesting move. I think from memory, the last prime minister who took no other portfolio was Jack Marshall way back in 1972. I think it's quite a shrewd move in a way because it does give him a bit more freedom to uh, range widely over the whole lot. He's not going to be bogged down in a particular portfolio. You know, John Key took on tourism because he wanted to make a whole lot of strides in that respect. David Longy in an earlier time took on education for a similar reason. And I think sometimes there's a risk they get too bogged down in a specific portfolio than the oversight of government. So I think standing aside the way Luxon has is, is quite a bright move. 
So what else is going on in the house at the moment, in the beehive this week? I mean, we've, yeah, so people moving in boxes, people moving into offices. Yes, it's all of those things. It's exciting. It's tense. It's slightly scary, I think. And when you suddenly realise the enormity of the responsibilities you've taken on and the expectations that are upon you. Because the one thing about the system is that it, it assumes that from the moment someone steps into office, they're in charge of and on top of their portfolio. And so there's little account taken with the fact that you might have only been in this job 12 hours or 24 hours and still coming up to up to speed with it. So ministers are really expected to be on top of their game from the beginning. And certainly when Parliament resumes and we get to the first question time, for instance, the opposition will be taking no prisoners. It, it will still have the advantage of probably knowing more about what's going on than the new ministers. That will fade over time, but they'll be very quick to try and press that home. And of course, the public perception then, if ministers look to be floundering or not up to the job, uh, that can be quite devastating. So it's a really exciting, it's scary, and it's a really sort of pulsating time for all of them to try and just you know get those first hits. And the impression the government will want to create is twofold. One is it knows what it's doing. It's a government of actions. It's getting on with its plan. And secondly, is that when people voted for change at the election, they're now getting that change. So they'll want to go to a way to Christmas feeling in control, in charge, and that the agenda they've set is being followed. There's been so much analysis and supposition and speculation since the election. What do you see, Peter, that the rest of us may not see? Because from your special position, really, of being you know, being a minister and and being in politics. what What is going on, do you think, that we haven't picked up? Well, I think what's happening is, uh, from the National Party's perspective, they're effectively seeking to pick up where they left off in 2017 when they left office. For New Zealand First, I think this is all about, um, and you've seen it in Peter's comments, this is all about, ha-ha, we're back, and it's a bit of revenge, you know, we, we told you so. Uh, for David Seymour, I think it's slightly different. Uh, with the numbers he's got, this is the first time that Act's had a chance to have a real influence on policy, and he'll be determined that that influence is a strong one. So, you know, they've all got different agendas here. Um, and the challenge is going to be getting to understand that Rome won't be built in a day. So getting ministers to get their plans organised so that they can be introduced in an effective and workable way uh, and that not everything's all happening in a rush at once so that the government can continue to, if you like, develop its own political momentum. At the same time, if I was a minister taking office today, I'd be thinking I've got three years now and all of the things I might want to do have to be sequenced within that three years. So let's start at the end and work our way back. To be able to do this, when do we need to have it implemented? When do we need to have key decisions about its structure made? Uh, what you know, what needs to happen to get to that point? And then starting to work your timetable out from there because there's nothing worse than leaving, as, we, as we've seen, I think, with the previous government, things either incomplete, half completed, or not started at all. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which, to be clear, did not involve taking bribes from the Labour government. This episode was engineered by Phil Bench and produced by Alexia Russell with help from Bonnie Harrison and Davina Zimmer. Thanks to Judith Collins and Peter Dunn. Ka kite.